are chatting today, or I am chatting, because it's just myself, Louise, here. I don't have my comrades Elaine or Misha with me today. Um, we're recording at the Tron Theatre in the Tron Vic Bar, and I have the very lovely, wonderful Karen Barkey with me today. Oh, my goodness. That's <laughs> a big sale. I don't know if I can cope with that. Of course you can. <laughs> Absolutely. Would you like to tell the good people who you are and what you do? My name is Karen Barkey, <laughs> and I'm an actor. Uh, so, yeah, uh, my name is... Sorry, I'll stop doing this. Silly <laughs> schoolgirl voice. My name's Karen. Um, yeah, I'm an actor. Uh, I, people might know me from a show called Scott Squad, which is a BBC, a BBC One Scotland mockumentary about the police. Um, I play a character called Officer Karen. I only play Karens. Um, which has restricted my career somewhat, obviously. Yeah. You should um, probably have a word with your agent about that. Just, like. yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, and I've done a variety of other things um, as well. I had a period where I was doing quite a lot of radio. Um, I was down with the BBC Radio Drama Company in London. So um, every so often I get texts from people going, you're on my radio! And it turns out they're repeating something that I did in 2017. And I'm, and I'm like, really? What am I doing? Who am I? In case I'm on the news or something. Yeah, you know, if the police are after make, me. Yeah, it's I important to clarify that, I think. Yeah. I, very much so. Um, so, yeah, and uh, I, I've done some stage work as well. Um, bits and bobs of everything. A wee bit of voiceover occasionally. Um, and I have been professional since... Well, full-time professional since 2010. Um, prior to that, I had a regular job in an office and I did little bits and bobs of acting work just on the sides as a hobby. Mm. Um, and then I had the opportunity to take redundancy from my job and decided that it was the only opportunity in my life financially for me to attempt being an actor mm. um, because the redundancy package meant I had a, a financial cushion. Um, right. I think, uh, like a lot of actors, um, especially, uh, is that fair? Not especially in Scotland. A lot of the actors I know in Scotland mm. come from working class or very lower middle class backgrounds, so they don't have the finances to go to drama college yeah. and to be able to be out of work for long periods. Um, everybody's got a side hustle. Absolutely. Um, you know, so that that point in 2010 where my company had to make redundancies was almost like a, a light bulb moment and I just thought if I don't do it now I will never do it mm -hmm. so I just jumped it's pretty terrifying um it was oddly liberating yeah um I hadn't realized when I was in work how much work was getting me down mm -hmm. I never felt terribly depressed about work at all but then as soon as I left, everybody said to me, oh, it's like a huge weight, so if you're shoulder, you look different. And I did feel, I felt like I, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I had, didn't have the confidence to try and do the things I wanted to do. And I felt the responsibility of being fiscally sensible, getting yeah. a job, paying bills, being able to look after myself. And so I just, I, I went to university and studied archaeology because I fancied it and it was it's no use to get a job I'm not gonna lie <laughs> turns out it's not a great vocational qualification <laughs> um, but I I didn't have the guts to go and apply for drama college at that point in time so I went to university and got a degree and got a job and I thought that's me sorted I know what I'm doing and I'll just I'll get my creative enjoyment on the sidelines that'll be my wee extra mm -hmm. and that'll be for me and then everything else is for 
responsible grown-up. Yeah. Um, and then to get to 2010 and be in the position to go, right, for six months, I'm just going to see if I can find a way to make a living at this mm -hmm. and know that I won't sink instantaneously. Yeah. That it, it was like a total do-over. It was like I had gone back to that juncture in my life and I could, I could take the opposite path. And it was immensely liberating. Mm -hmm. um, also frightening, and I spend now spend a lot of my life doing sums in my head all the time, going, well, if this comes in and I pay that, and then if I get this, and then, well, I suppose I could do, I'm constantly adding up mm -hmm. what, what's due to come in, what I'm doing this month and what's therefore due to come in next month. I'm permanently, it's like yeah. crap accounting for beginners. And I think it's something we don't talk about very much in terms of we're acting, particularly acting, but any sort of vocational arts-based job, that's the bit nobody talks about. It's all about, like, particularly in the age of social media, curating that everything's great and it's all fine, but actually yeah. it's just this constant, like, am I going to be able to eat this week? Yeah. And we don't talk about, about it enough because it affects people's mental health as well, and I think it's, like, it's also the reason people burn out and just give up. Absolutely. Um, I mean... There's there's lots of pressures that, now, and I'll, I'll I'll clarify that before I say anything more. I love my job, and I'm happier now than I've ever been. And at the moment, I don't feel like I would want to give it up. Mm -hmm. um, and I've found a way around it because I've got side hustles. Yeah. So at the moment, it hasn't got on top of me. I totally understand why it does with lots of people, and it's not just the money. It's the waiting for someone to give you permission. Yeah. To to do the thing that you want to be doing. Um, it's the the lack of fairness, which is a very immature way of looking at it, but it's part of my core, because I think I stopped aging at about six or seven or something. <laughs> so I have a very black and white view of the world, which I'm trying really hard to get over. Um, but there's a certain lack of fairness because realistically, it's not even about talent sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and you're either a good plumber or you're a Am I allowed to swear on this? Yes. Fuck yes. Yeah. <laughs> you're either a good plumber or you're a shit plumber, right? It's quite easy for people to tell. Mm -hmm. But you and I watch the same show, and I think that guy's amazing, and you think he's wooden as all hell. Mm -hmm. It's totally subjective. So you can't even argue that you deserved a job. Yeah. You, you just have to really hope that you might get one. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that lack of control and the lack of fairness and the lack of money, and the lack of security, and social life, and weekend, everything. There's a lot that you're that you're sacrificing in order to get the the unique fulfilment that comes from actually getting to do this as what you do for a job. Mm -hmm. um, but it's yeah, it's really it's really hard, and I absolutely understand why people get to a point and they go, do you know what? Fuck this, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get an actual job with wages and holidays and yeah. pensions and maternity leave and all these like, wild <laughs> notions that I just know not of anymore. I think it's interesting. You brought up um, a drama school um, a few minutes ago and you were talking about at the time when you were younger, you didn't have the confidence to, to sort of pursue that. Yeah. Um, and I think... Just in terms of what we've just been chatting about, about fairness and stuff like that, that drama school journey, that idea of who goes to it, who can afford to go to it, who yeah. has the confidence to to think I'm going to put myself in front of these people at that young age. Yeah. Um, 
what do you think that was about for you when you say lack of confidence was it uh, did you think that, com that it came from a sort of message that you were sent from your surroundings about getting a proper job or it, it was a whole variety of things um, some of it because I was thinking about this this morning in terms of because um, I was thinking about feminism because I knew I was coming to speak to you some of it I was too plain to play the pretty girl and I was too I was not plain enough to be the character <sighs> and realistically I would never have worked in my 20s because it's too big a pool and you either have to be really beautiful or really weird <laughs> <laughs> to stand out and yeah. I was just too ordinary mm -hmm. so that was one thing um, I couldn't afford the fee yeah really um, you have to because I was going to apply to the RSMD because I couldn't I didn't feel like I could afford to go away anywhere else I went to Aberystwyth to apply to university to do drama at uh, Aberystwyth. And first of all, uh, they were fixing the sewers in Aberystwyth that summer, so that kind of put me off, because the whole, literally the whole town smelled like Joby. <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I don't know if I want to come here. Um, <laughs> and the thought of being so far away um, was, I, I didn't have the nerve for it. And realistically, my mum didn't have the money mm. to help me. And even although, when I was at university, I got a grant. I didn't pay any fees, and yeah. I got a grant, and it was still a struggle. Um, because, I, you know, and I had a Saturday job and stuff. I worked in the Gateway Superstore supermarket, Cathy, clearing the tables. It was dead glamorous. Um, yeah, mine was an MK1 in the East Kilbride Shopping Centre. <laughs> Very glamorous. Oh, look, there's nothing better than watching the restaurant manager dropping a tray of rolls in the dirty water next to the <laughs> dishwasher, and then just picking them up and putting them out anyway. <laughs> Don't eat in, in the cafe and gateway if they still exist. Just just that's a wee public health yeah. announcement. Um, so yeah, I I went to Aberystwyth and I was really intimidated by the people there as well because I was a I was a really shy child. Um, it seems weird because this is what I do for a living. Um, in a lot of ways, I think I'm quite an introvert, although mm. I'm very open. Um, I find it exhausting being around big crowds of people for any length of time. And I retreat a lot into my room. Like, I go and sit at my computer in my wee... I call it my study, it's the back bedroom. <laughs> but we've got bookshelves, so it counts. Um, you know, I retreat, and sometimes I need days of that to get yeah. over if I've been in a lot of people. And the, the openness that I am now comfortable with I didn't have in my teens and twenties at all. I was really, really neurotic and an incredible people pleaser as well. Mm. Um, and because of all those things, just going into that environment where there were lots of really confident girls who were all like super stale and had leg warmers because it was the late eighties, early nineties, and you know, dance trousers and and just brimming with experience of drama games and all that kind of stuff yeah. and I I was so far out of my dates I was just like no and we came home and I had the forms for the RSAMD but it was £35 to audition yeah and and I was going like I had a checkbook actually but I was like it's so much money it's so much money just to go and audition and I was sure I wouldn't get in mm. and I took the forms into town and w went to the RSMD 
try to decide whether or not to put them through the door. I didn't, it wasn't even about posting them. I literally went to the building and I was like, actually, no, I won't bother. And I tore them up, I threw them away. So, and I'd been accepted to University at Glasgow. And at the time I thought, I'd applied to do film and television studies. That was my plan. And in my head, because I was 17, 18, I was really naive. I thought, well, maybe that would be the way in. And then I could be like a researcher on a show and then one day they'll be like, oh, do you know what we need? And I'll be like, I could do that. And I'll just sneak in the back door. Because you do, like, before you kind of get into the industry, you, you think there are shortcuts and back doors and that, that it's just that you haven't found them. Yeah. There aren't any. Which, because that's one thing I do, I sometimes get a tiny bit frustrated. And I, I will... I will give anyone any advice. If they want to ask me anything, I will try my best to help them. But some people kind of go, um, so who should I get in touch with to get an audition for River City? And I'm like, I don't know, but if you find out, could you fucking tell me? Because <laughs> I can't get arrested <laughs> for that kind of job. <laughs> so, you know, it looks great on paper because I work. Yeah. But it's, there's no secret. There's not like a wee cabal of people up the back <laughs> handing out jobs to their favourite. Well, maybe there are. I don't know. I don't know any of them. It's funny because um, I remember having a conversation with a family member who has a connection to a quite a well-known actor. And um, every time they see me, they're like, oh, so-and-so's um, daughter-in-law or whatever is, is so-and-so. Do you want me... Should, should, should I give you her email? Or should I try and connect you? And I'm like, that's not really how it works. Like, just because this person's doing really well doesn't mean she's going to go, oh, that person's niece twice removed to your pal's neighbour. Like, that, yeah, it just doesn't work like that. And it's funny how people perceive it as... Well, it's like, it's I know. Like... It does, it blows my mind. Or, or people go, um, people ask about agents, for example. Because having an agent, I mean, there's so many things about being an actor that you, you just, you'd be amazed how boring and difficult it is <laughs> sometimes. So you have to be on Spotlight, right? You have to be on Spotlight. Because if you're not on Spotlight, you don't exist. Mm -hmm. So that's 150 quid a year. Yeah, the Jews, like, I think they've all been renewed just recently, haven't yeah. they? Yeah, that came through that email at this time of year is always fun. Yeah, so you pay to be on Spotlight. But then, like, there's no rules about what people can post on Spotlight. So they can post a job that, you know, 30 years ago would have been worth £100,000 for 20 quid. Somebody will apply. Yeah. Because there's, a, there's an idea that working at all is better than not working. And, and I, I can't even argue against that because I get it. And 20 quid is better than no quid. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> if you've got a, a mortgage or rent or something, 20 pounds is 20 pounds. So how do you say to someone, don't take that job because they're exploiting you? Because at the same time, I'm going, but I don't have the 20 quid to give you. So stand by your principles and maybe they'll keep you warm <laughs> when the roof's leaking. It's, it's the same thing applies to the idea of like not doing unpaid sharings or readings or, or doing things for expenses. It's like, yeah. I just really want the opportunity to actually do this, if that's all right. Like, yeah. I, can, I understand where you're coming from. Like, by participating, maybe we're perpetuating this idea that you can just go and do things for no money, but at the same time, I want to do it. And yeah. you keep telling me in order to get an agent or to be considered for something, I need to be in something you can see. So... Yeah. How do I do that? If, yeah. Like, yeah, it's it's a very vicious, exploitative circle. And I mean, I've said this to people in the past, and I really stand by it. The problem is, realistically, everybody in this industry 
not for all actors, but certainly for me, they've all got me over a barrel, right? And they all kind of know it. Because see, if they won't pay me for it, I'll still do it anyway. Because I like it. Yeah. And for a long time, I'd, I was an actor for a hobby and I paid for the privilege of being in a club. And then I knocked my pan in selling tickets and I loved every minute of it. And I had a thoroughly good time and I learned tons. Mm -hmm. But I was paying for the opportunity to do this. Yeah. Because it just, it, it fulfills a frankly emotional need that therapy might also fulfill that I don't have the money for. Um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it fills a gap and, and I need the approval. <laughs> there, I've said it, yeah. I need the approval and I don't just want the same people to approve me, I need someone new, which is how I know it will never be filled. Mm -hmm. Because I realised this about myself two, three years ago. God, I'm really just talking a lot of devil and this no, is that, going off on no, wild tangents. That's what we, that's what we want. Um, <laughs> I realised about two, three years ago, if someone, get, if someone offers me a job, it feels amazing, right? See, if they offer me another job, it doesn't feel as good. It still feels good, but it's not as good as someone new liking me. <laughs> so, so <laughs> and I was like, wow. I mean, that's, that's really emotionally crippled in a way that you're never going to recover from. It's too late now, I'm nearly 50. I'm not going to get over that. So, so the whole industry has me over a barrel because all I need is someone new to tell me that they want me. And I'm like, oh, thank God. You've made me feel alive for five, ten minutes. I'll do it for nothing. I'll pay you. Do you want me to bring my own costume? Um, so, um, and that's the challenge, is that... that and it's also really difficult because you're freelance, so people say to you, well, what do you charge? Mm. What do you charge for doing a voiceover? And I'm like, I don't know. What do you think it's worth? What have you got? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, heart surgery, I can definitely, I could take a good guess at a monetary value for that. I would say a lot, <laughs> a shitload. I think that's worth a lot of money. <laughs> Me reading something out loud for you, well, you know, I do it for free for people's kids. Yeah. <laughs> And so it's it's immensely difficult because how do you put a value on how do you put a value on doing this based on what you think other people are getting out of it? I don't know what people get out of watching. Some people may just get incredibly bored or frustrated or irritated or you know some people might it might be for one person. One person might come to see a play I'm in and it could be life-changing for them, but five of them could come and it just could be a numb arse. Um, and I, I don't know how to, how to put a financial value on that. But at the, at the very same time, I'm like, but drama and comedy and, and performance and entertainment is a huge part of my life as a, as a watcher. Mm -hmm. And I'm cheerfully paying. <sighs> Seven eight nine a month for Netflix yeah. and money for Sky and because I because I fucking love watching television I love it I watch a, way too much <laughs> um, and it's you know so it's weird because I can't but then I suppose that's that's a more generic issue for me is that I I see myself in terms of me as an actor and me as a woman and me as as all of those things in a way that I wouldn't see anybody else. Mm -hmm. it, do you know what I mean? I know what you mean, yeah. And I think it's like we sit in a weird industry in the sense that we sit and we talk about, well, how do you place a value on it? And at the same time, people 
you know, we're getting our ears nipped about, you have to value yourself, so don't take unpaid work, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And it's like, well, we can see that our, we can see tangibly that our culture values arts yeah. and entertainment because everyone has Netflix, everybody goes to the cinema, a big chunk of people go to the theater, et cetera, et cetera. We can see that they, they value it, but there's no culture or infrastructure in place for an industry to help the people who make that culture value themselves, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because we are being exploited all the time and oh, you, you should work for free if you want to get ahead. And, and there's so many middle people between us, the actors on the ground and getting to the jobs. <laughs> so there's managers, there's agents, there's casting directors, the directors, the producers, the writers, and it's like all of these people, whereas we were just kind of going, I'll do it for 20 quid. Yeah. <laughs> just let me do it. Yeah. Um, so it's fundamentally flawed as, in fact, it's funny, a colleague of mine who's also an actor slash producer slash hustler of many hats, um, doesn't like to use the word industry um, when referring to the arts because it's not, because it's broken in that way, because the people in it, there is no infrastructure to protect them and it is unfair and, and uh, it doesn't have human resources and it doesn't have, yeah. um, you know... What you would expect if you worked in a, yeah, an office a or McDonald's? Yeah, or? a straightforward um, entry point or, or pathway. And... Um, for that reason, she doesn't like referring to it as an industry because it's broken, um, which I think is a really interesting way of looking at it. Uh, it is. I mean, it's it's so complicated. I think because because it's it's such a different. I think art generally. I mean, it's the same as how how do you put a value on a painting? How do you put a value on a band? Um, a band come and they play, because I, I, I sing uh, backing vocals in a, a covers band, wedding band. And somebody said to me a long time ago, do you know why you don't get more bookings? Because you charge too little. Oh, and I was okay. like, what? And they went, because they'll look at you and they'll go, well, that's a, f how many is there? One, two, there's six of us. It's a six piece band. You're so much cheaper than all the other six piece bands that they'll assume that you're rubbish. Yeah. Whereas the reason that, weirdly, Everybody in the band is actually like, most of them are music teachers. So they're lifelong musicians. Mm -hmm. And they, they, you know, and I, I'm not going to lie, I think we're really decent. Yeah. Because the singers are all great. All the musicians are really tight, really, you know, we're a really good band, make a great sound. But we didn't charge very much because we were doing it because we liked it. Mm -hmm. And this, this guy was like, but that's why you're not booking, because six crap people are charging nearly twice as much as you. So they're looking at you going, God, they must be awful. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I suppose that's true. And, but then you, you think about it, each of those people, you're not just paying for the night that that band arrives. You're paying for all the years that they learned how to play the guitar really mm -hmm. well. And the guitar. And all the kit to let you hear the guitar. And the transport. And, you know, and the rehearsals. And the rehearsal rooms. And there's a huge investment of, of a person's time and life just to get them to the point where they can go, here's my art, you can take it or leave it. Um, which is, and, and it's the same with the visual arts, it's the same with everything and it's the same with acting. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I feel really, I feel really uncomfortable if somebody's wanting to pay me £150 to read something out loud. I still find that difficult. <laughs> but then at the same time, I'm like, but you're not just paying for the reading out loud, you're also paying for me not having a job so that I'm available to come yeah. in and read out loud when you want me to. And you have to be on the end of a phone 24-7 mm -hmm. now 
um, you, you know, you get you get phone calls saying, "Can you come in for a casting tomorrow at ten? And then they send you fifteen pages of script. So you 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 can't have. It's really hard. And and what people don't see a lot of the time is that the actors who have all most of them have side hustles. You have to have really hit a pretty solid level in your career where you don't have a side job. Yeah. And you know, I I know some really successful actors who are unabashedly still. Um, there's an actress called Shauna McDonald mm-hmm. who is who is great and who, who we're works. hoping to get for the podcast. Hi, Shauna. Yeah, <laughs> she's great and she works tons and she is really proud to be running a youth theatre as well and she does it really well mm-hmm. and it's great and it's a huge success and flaming good on her. Yeah. Because there's nothing wrong with having something else on the side at oh, no, all. Not at all. And I think anybody that, that makes you feel bad for that or suggesting that you're not a proper actor or a real actor or whatever because you do something else to feed yourself and keep yourself afloat. Because let's face it, like, and this is the thing that a lot of people don't realise, like, you're on the telly. You're yeah. in Scott Squad. Um, I know plenty of actors who've been on the telly. I've done a wee bit of telly. But you might go and do that job and then a year goes by since you recorded it <laughs> and you're back at the bar pulling pints or doing whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah. But people think, well, you must be a proper actor and that's the only thing that you do. And it's like, well, no, actually. Yeah. That happened and it was great. And it's... Well, do you know, and that makes me think about another thing that I find interesting about the industry, and it's weird, because one of the things that really gets people down, it got me down as well, even with Scott Squad, right? So we shot the pilot of Scott Squad, and I was in a play at the same time. Like, a play that was touring the country. Oh, my God. I know. Now, I was in the play because I had the right driving licence to drive the minibus, to be fair. <laughs> Still. Um, no, it's true. Yeah. That was mostly why I was in the play. And even my character was like an afterthought in the play. It's a play called The Man Who Had All The Luck. It's a true story. It took me ages to figure this out, right? <laughs> so The Man Who Had All The Luck has two women in it. Um, one of them is the protagonist's uh, wife and the other one is his aunt. And she appears in Act One and then she doesn't come in again until the protagonist's wife is upstairs having a baby. Right. Right. And it took me about two weeks into the tour to go, oh, I know why Aunt Belle's in it. Because someone has to tell him whether the baby lived and it can't be a guy. And the only other woman is having the baby. So Arthur Miller went, oh, I've done another woman. So he then just inserts her into act one. She just randomly comes in and sneezes a couple of times and fucks off. <laughs> and then she comes back in act three to tell him whether or not the baby's alive. So I was in the play because someone had to tell him about the baby. And I was in the cast because I could drive the minibus. Um, so, so I'm doing this, and it was still, it was great. I had a lovely time most of the time. Occasionally, it wasn't brilliant, but um, job's a job, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and we're, and the pilot's been shot, and it's going to go out, and we're in. I think we were in Glasgow actually. And uh, the day the pilot was due to go out, there was a, a tragic, tragic event at Bear Street Police Station. A police officer committed suicide. Oh, no. So they pulled the pilot, which I totally was like, absolutely, that's exactly what they should have done, 100% mm-hmm. behind it. But at the same time, I was going, God, I thought that was it. I thought, I'm in a play, I'm on the telly, this will be it, this will be the kickoff, and everything will happen. And they pulled the pilot, and I was like, oh. So we finished the play, and nothing happened. And then they aired the pilot, and nothing happened. <laughs> nothing at all. 
I just continued to work exactly the way I had been, which was mostly doing murder mysteries, some training role plays, um, and at that point in time, I was also um, working for Ipsos Mori, doing the monthly political monitor and getting yelled at by people because Ipsos Mori had phoned them. Um, and then we got a series. And I thought, well, this is it. Surely this must be the kickoff. Surely this must lead on to something. And it takes, and everybody does it, you can't help it. Every time somebody puts a solitary opportunity in front of you, you go, well, maybe this is it, maybe this is the start. It never is. Every job is just a job. Mm -hmm. And you get the job, and you go up the slope to the top of the job, and you do the job, and it goes really well, and then you just go straight back to the start. It's like playing Monopoly, and you never even get round the board once. <laughs> you just always go back to go. Um, and and that... That's another thing that, that's why lots of people drop out, I think, yeah. because they just feel the crushing disappointment that it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Um, which is, it's so hard and... It, it, it's, incre it's incredibly hard and one of the things when people talk to me and, if, and ask questions about what kind of advice would you give people, my question is always... Well, I, follow, I ask a question, is like, what's your psychological stamina like? Mm. Like... Do you have some? Because you're going to need it. It's, you, you need to be bold where that's concerned. Yeah. Um, it's I mean, that's tough. It is. And, and it's difficult because I always, feel, I always feel really bad when anybody says to me that they want to be an actor. I'm like, if you can't do anything else, absolutely, go for it. If you can't live without doing it, then it's the best thing in the world. And you do, I get tons out of it. But if you can countenance doing anything else, if you don't feel just this overwhelming vocational necessity of doing it, go and do something else because it'll, it'll destroy you. Mm -hmm. And it'll ruin your love of... It'll ruin all your enjoyment of it as well. Um, I think... We've talked before, I think, about celebrity culture and about the desire to be famous. Um, and I think that's a real issue as well. A lot of, because when I, in the 80s I was in a youth theatre and then in the 90s and the noughties I was in um, the Pantheon Club in Glasgow, which is a, a brilliant club that's been going for 100 years nearly. Mm. Um, and I was also in Giffnick Theatre Players and Strathclyde Theatre Group. I was in a variety of different amateur theatre companies. And people were there and they, they were doing it because they just loved it. Mm -hmm. And there were outstanding performers. Performers, frankly, who are sometimes better than the pros that you'll go and see. Pantheon, in particular, has a clutch of people who are unbelievable. Like, but all all of the clubs in Glasgow, you, you, I mean, you'll see a variety. Some people won't be as good, but you'll go and you'll see a couple of people and be like, I don't understand why you're not in the West End. Mm -hmm. Incredible singers, fantastic actors, and and people put their heart and soul into it because they love it. And what used to happen is that anybody that had a wee a wee fancy for trying it, we'd go and join an amateur theatre company and they would see if they loved it. Mm -hmm. But now what they do is they go to one of eight billion colleges who will all charge them 12 grand a year to do the course and then they come out and go, well, Spielberg's going to phone. <laughs> Any minute now. And they wait a year and they're skint and they get rejected and then they try and do unpaid stuff and... Sometimes you're lucky and you do an unpaid thing and it's it's great and you get tons out of it. Sometimes it's absolutely chronic. Yeah. 
and you get nothing out of it and the footage you were promised never appears and it's just a constant chipping away. It's just disappointment, disappointment. And then eventually it makes them hate the art. Yeah. Because the because the job side of it is really crappy. Um, you know, and I, I think we've, we've developed a society now where being famous is something to be aspired to in and of itself. Yeah. Whereas fame as far as I'm concerned, is the kind of crappy byproduct of yeah. being good at something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're lucky enough to climb that ladder to that very, very peak, because let's face it, fame comes with that moment where it is up there, you've got it, yeah. you've, you've made it, as it were, for want of a better expression. Yeah, and it is it's that crappy byproduct. Because to be honest, I just want to work. Yeah. This idea of like just not having a year-long gap between yeah. professional gigs would be enough. <laughs> uh -huh. Absolutely. I, I've, I, for me, my aspiration was always job and actor. If I could pay my bills by doing this. I mean, that was my initial dream. Now my dream is to pay my bills by only doing that mm. and not have to have a side hustle. Yeah. Um, I can't... I, I know people who are genuinely famous and it's a real... I know it sounds terrible to moan about it on their behalf, but it's it's a... It's not great. Mm -hmm. You have no personal life. You have no right to be tired or grumpy or you're permanently on display and people feel an ownership of you that they haven't, they have no right to. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really lucky, to be really honest, because very few people recognise me and I'm delighted. I like it that way and I'm, the longer that lasts, you know, it, it, well, I'm being really honest. A bit of me sometimes goes, God, I wonder if, Maybe if I was slightly more recognisable, I would get more work. I don't want people in the street to recognise me. <laughs> I don't want people in shops to recognise me. But I wish more people who may offer me work recognised me. Well, it's that interesting thing. You brought up something earlier that chimed in my brain to ask you about. It's that thing about that recognition and per perception and what's considered good or bad for your career or the right or wrong thing to do. And... Um, you know, the, the casting director of the agent might look at your CV and go, oh, that's a real thing. Like, oh, look, BBC, oh, look, yeah. this director. Cool, then they must be a proper actor. Yeah. Um, because I had an agent tell me, um, and maybe this is true, like, just don't put any any of your Amdram credits on there. Don't put any Amdram credits on your spotlight or on your CV. Yeah. And I understand the, the rationale behind that, but, like, there's something about telling people that doing that sort of thing, if they want, to learn or just yeah. be on stage is not valuable that really sticks in my craw a little bit. It's like, well, why would you tell an actor that they shouldn't do something if it gets them on stage? Particularly with like club, like take Pantheon, for yeah. example, as a, as a an Amdram club in Glasgow. That what they, their setup is as close as you're gonna get to the professional experiences as possible. Like it's they're putting on shows that have got huge budgets in big theatres. Um, and you, yeah, and I think one of the things about clubs like, like Pantheon and Giffnick Theatre Players and STG and all those places, if you're charging people money, which you are, yeah. um, and sometimes you're charging them a quite substantial amount of money, you better make sure you're putting on something half decent. Yeah. Because they'll only pay it once. Yeah. And, if, and the difference for an amateur club, although it's harder for professional theatre companies as well now but the, the, the thing with an amateur club is if you spend more than you earn you go bust that's mm. the end there is no fallback there is no you can't apply for funding you just need to make more than you spent it's 
basic capitalism in action. Um, so, yeah, you have to go out and, and, and as I say, I've, I've seen some amazing performances. And I, and I know how I know how hard people work, and that's people doing it on top of holding down a day job and having a family and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think it's really difficult that, again, to use the word industry loosely. Um, a lot of what happens is about perception, and and sometimes I look at it and I'm like, it really is all smoke and mirrors, including that bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just the on-stage bit, the whole thing smoke and mirrors. You have to make it look as if you're professional. Mm -hmm. um, and I, when I was in the amateur clubs, I always felt the difference between amateur and professional a lot of the time was just money. Yeah. That was all it An was. opportunity, like you say, yeah. like some of these people are... I had a conversation with... Because I did, I did a Pantheon show not that long ago. I did... Um, mentioned Mention week last year yeah. because my pal Alice Langley, who you know, yes. the director, had been brought in and I jumped at the chance, so I did it. And there was an um, absolutely brilliant actress. She's a long-term club member. And I think I had a chat with her. I remember having a chat with her about how the reason that she didn't pursue it was because mm -hmm. the message that she was told when growing up was like, no, no, that's not a proper job. You need to go to law school or whatever and do that. Yeah. And that's why. Like Ultimately, it was like lack of opportunity or lack of encouragement in terms of the narrative around what's considered the right thing to do with your life yeah um but she's shit hot she yeah. could have easily been on a west end stage so for me it's like well what what are we saying here what is like you say smoke and mirrors it is it's an illusion of professionalism like don't talk about your side hustle because it shouldn't exist if you're a professional you can't have done arm dram if you're a professional like all of this it's like that's nonsense and not how it works yeah at all i mean i I suppose it's like any any place where, where people have got have found their place in it. It's that kind of pulling the ladder up behind you a wee bit. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think having said that, equally, I know people who would argue that 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 going to drama school and all that kind of stuff is investing and in wanting to do this as a job, and it's it's a sign of commitment, and that coming up through the amateur route are, I've heard the argument that that's kind of like trying to sneak in the side door mm. I'm not sure that I agree with that I'm not minimising drama school at all um, I think uh, but then uh, it gets so complicated because I always try and see everything from every angle which is why I'm just going off at tangents all the time so I'm like <laughs> oh my god hustle all those thoughts back yeah. into one place um, so, the thing with the thing about drama college, I know that my career would probably be going better if I had been at drama college, because just having the name on the CV would make a difference. Mm. It wouldn't prove that I was a better actor, it wouldn't prove I was a worse actor, it wouldn't prove anything, it would just prove that I showed up and I signed up and yeah. paid the fee. Um, but it is a hamper to me. At the same time, I know there's stuff I would have learned at drama school that I don't know. And I'm, which compounds my own imposter syndrome, which everybody has to a greater or lesser extent. I like to think mine is quite big. Um, but I've got quite a large imposter syndrome. Um, so not having been at drama college, I feel incomplete. Um, and and I, I worry that I'm not as flexible or as... Uh, 
adaptable as I would have been had I gone to drama college because I've just not, and some of it's just really basic, I've just not stretched those muscles at all. I've never even tried them because if somebody doesn't give me a job that involves that, I don't know if I can do it. Mm. And I won't find out until someone does, which is awful. <laughs> That's a really weird place to be in where you're like, God, I'd love to do an audiobook one day. God, I hope I'm not shit at it, eh? Because <laughs> if somebody <laughs> hires me to do an audiobook, I can't be shit at it. But also, at the same time, so many of our, uh, like our greats, our great actors, never set foot in a drama school. Yeah. They came up through rep. They, they went through youth theatre. They just learned by doing. Absolutely. And I think there's, I think there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors around drama school as well. And I say that as someone who went. I went to drama school, not in this country, but I, I did go. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's great. And it's, it's useful and you have a ball yeah. and all the rest of it. And, some teachers try and make you cry before half past nine in the morning <laughs> and then apparently that's all valuable. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think there is a certain element of viewing someone's value or talent or worth based on the training that's written at the top of their yeah. CV. I'm not entirely sure that's... No, I... I, I also understand it's a filter. Like, yeah. with a million people wanting to be actors, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, that, that is part of the challenge as well. Because, like, I've got a friend who went to a really well-known like really well-known uh, drama school in London, which is specifically for uh, musical theatre performance. That's really what they do. And my friend had been uh, someone that I knew and had this incredible voice and fantastic stage presence and everything. And she paid the huge amount of money that it cost to go to this drama school. And I went to see her in her final year show. And I was like, wow, she's got a fantastic voice, an amazing stage presence, and it's all the stuff she arrived with. But now <laughs> it says the drama school name on her CV. Yeah. And a bit of me was going, I don't know what the money was for. Mm. Because they... And then, and, and in one hand, I was delighted because they hadn't ruined her voice by making her sound exactly like everybody else. Right. And yet, I've no doubt she learned technique and stuff to, to make her voice um, sustain better not convinced she wouldn't have figured that out on her own. So all those fees were so that she could put the name of that place on. And um, the thing is, that place started out as an amateur theatre company <laughs> in the 50s. And they start, and I was like, because we arrived at this, I'm not mentioning the drama school because I'm worried that I'm going to end up mentioning my friend's name and then they'll be like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, but when we went, to see, you know, the big finish, the, the penultimate show, because she had a, the showcase for agents and stuff. Um, they've got, like, a beautiful wee thing. They've moved buildings now, I hasten to add. But in the building, they had this beautiful little display all about the history of the school. Mm. It started out as a bloody amateur theatre company. I was like, Pantheon could just do classes, and in 50 years' time, being at the Pantheon School of Music and Drama, <laughs> it'll be, like, amazing. I was like, what? And it cost her a fortune. And she came out every bit as talented and every bit as good mm -hmm. as she went in. Because they can't, you can't teach that. Yeah. You can teach technique, you can teach, you can teach accounting, you can teach like how you write a good letter to an agent, you can teach how you spotlight, how to do your tax return. I wish they taught you how to do your tax return. Oh God. Um, <laughs> God, I wish they taught you how to do that. I wish somebody would tell someone how to do that, because I just do it every year, like I have no idea. I I don't know. Um, so, yes, so to come back to the whole point, I agree, 
drama school is a filter and it's more of a filter now than it ever used to be because now five million people want to be an actor. Mm. Maybe 500,000 wanted to be an actor when I was young. Mm-hmm. Maybe 50,000 wanted to be an actor before that, but now there's billions and billions. I, I don't buy into there's one way to do it. No, I don't, I don't buy either. into there's one way to act because fundamentally I don't know what it's like to be anyone but me and yeah. neither do you. Yeah. And so how I do it is not how you're going to do it and it doesn't matter how much you explain it to me, I'm still not going to get it. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm waving my arms a lot. You can't see this because it's radio. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm very... My arms are getting... I'm getting worked It's very up. innovative. Aye. Uh, I have a question about perception relating to your particular journey because you decided to go for it. Yes. What age were you when you decided, right, this is it, the redundancy package is in, I've got my cushion, I'm going for it? 20, so I was 30, oh God, let me do the sums. 2010, I left and I was born in 72, 82, 92, 02, 38. <laughs> I can't right. believe how hard that was. <laughs> this is because they don't teach you how to do tax returns and stuff I like know. that. You, just, you, you don't know how to count. This is the problem. Um, I blame the government. It's not an industry. No. <laughs> so, how? What were your immediate challenges then? Um, oh, um, I mean, I, I was quite lucky because I look considerably younger than I am. Um, so, I probably didn't have as much of a challenge with age. My my principal challenge is I popped into existence out of thin air at the age of thirty eight. So nobody's ever going to come across me. Mm. Um, it's really hard for anyone to find out that I'm alive because artistic directors and, and producers and casting directors, especially in Scotland, go to young people to find new talent that's going to come up. Mm-hmm. Or if you're not new talent, then they must know you because yeah. they know everybody. Yeah. So when I just popped into existence like that, ta-da, <laughs> I'm nearly 40, I'm available for work. And everybody was like, I, well, I can't see you, I can't see you. Like, literally as if they had blinkers on and just, I was invisible. Um, so just trying to crack open any door was really challenging. Um, I, I, and any work that I've done has mostly been shared dumb luck. Um, I, I got to do a play called My Name Is with Tamasha Theatre Company. Realistically, I think they auditioned me because they had tried everyone else. I think I was in the last... I think I was the only one left that they hadn't seen in the whole of the UK who was in the age bracket. Um, And I think they... Yeah, so I was immensely lucky to get that job. And then because I got that job, that meant that some people now knew I existed because Mm -hmm. it it came up here and it toured and it toured down south and... um, and it became a radio play and I got an award for the radio play. And so that became a way for me to be visible. Mm-hmm. Still not hugely visible, but more visible than I had been. And Scott Squad became a way to become visible. Um, prior to that, I genuinely, I, I, I just didn't get any auditions. The man who had all the luck was the other audition I had. And I, I honestly think I got that because I said I could drive the bus. And... That's a true story. <laughs> we were doing the auditions and I had been going to these improv classes that my friend Colin runs. Ran, sorry. Him and another guy called Paul Cromie, who tragically is no longer with us. But um, so, and my favourite game was Party Quirks, which they always played on Whose Line Is It Anyway and stuff as well. Right? And 
Colin was a, a great teacher. I was terrified of him, but he was a brilliant teacher. And he, he would say, who wants to go first? And if everybody's hands didn't shoot up, immediately he would go, well, then why the fuck are you here? If you don't want to do it, fuck off. And we would be like, oh, man. So I developed this kind of Pavlovian response <laughs> of if anyone says, who wants to go first? I'm just like, I'll do it, before Colin shouts at me. So, um, so we, went, <laughs> we went to this audition um, with the, uh, David Hutchison from Celador. And he said, so we're going to play a wee improv game. Uh, so it's, it's, I don't know if you know it, um, they used to do it on Whose Line Is It Anyway? And I was like, oh. And he went, it's, it's a game, so one of you is going to be the host of a party. And I was like, this is my fucking go-to game. This is my jam. <laughs> and he said, so one of you will be the host, and the other people, I will give them all a quirk, and then the host has to figure out what everybody's quirk is. Who wants to be the host? And I was like, I'll do it! <laughs> So, me! So, and I think that and the bus is really how I got that job. But that was the only audition I had for so long. Like, for years it was the only audition I got until Tamasha, basically. Um, and Scott Squad also came out of those improv classes mm. um, because Joe Hewlett was looking for improvisers and we were doing a show, and we were the only ones in Glasgow. So he, he came to see the only improvisers he could find. Um, so, and, and, I, and the reason I was doing that class is because I knew I was shit scared of improv. Mm. And, I, and, and I, I had a bit of an epiphany. Sorry, you've barely got a word in, I'm no, sorry, no, i just that's, that's the point, you're the guest. <laughs> I had a bit of an epiphany, it's all quite serious for a moment. Um, one of my friend's mums was terminally ill and I didn't go to see her for the last five months of her life because she'd always been an immensely strong woman and I, I, I made lots of excuses in my own head for why I wasn't going. Why I wasn't going was because I was frightened to see her like that. And I was afraid it would upset me. And then she died. And then it was too late. And I, at that point, something just snapped, not snapped, but switched. And I was like, I am never going to allow fear to be the thing that stops me doing something. If there's a good reason for me not doing it, then fair enough. But I'm not going to not do it just because I'm afraid of it. In fact, I'm going to actively confront things I'm afraid of because I refuse to ever make that mistake again. Um, so... I did things like went to Barcelona and went up the Sagrada Familia, even though I'm scared of heights. And I joined an improv class and went and did improv in front of people who'd paid money for it. And, and I was just like, no, I'm, I, if I'm afraid of it, then I'm going to do it rather than avoid it. And had, I, had that not happened, and had I not then joined that improv class, pretty much the vast majority of my work wouldn't exist. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, you know. So, and again, that's the thing. I know people people look at me and they're and I'm always looking at other people's careers and being like, oh God, I wish, I wish I was like, I wish I could get the stuff that they're getting. I wish I was at that level. But I know there are people looking at me like that. Whereas I'm looking at my own career, going, I mean, it's not really a career. I've, I'm in like Ash O, and I get to do some other stuff. Mm -hmm. 
I don't feel like I'm valid in the way that other actors are valid. And the one, the one time when I really noticed it, there's a guy called Mark Nelson, mm. who uh, has been doing a show for Radio 4. And he posted on Facebook he was going to be on Radio 4, and I was like, oh, that's amazing. I was delighted for him, because he's brilliant. He's a really funny guy, and he's a lovely guy. And I was like, ah, oh, hooray. And I was so impressed because he was going to be on Radio 4. But it's different when he's going to be on Radio 4. I don't think it's impressive the stuff that... Occasionally I stop and I go, God, you have to remember, you've actually done quite a lot. Mm. But it seems like it's not worth it, it's not valid because it's mine. Yeah. But then I see other people doing the same stuff and I'm like, oh my God, he's made it. He's on Radio 4. I'm like, I've been on Radio 4 three times this week, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I just forgot. Because, it, because the actual... When I go and do it, if you go and do a radio play... Oh, God, I'm so off on tangents. It's horrendous. If you go and do a radio play, they send you a script, right? And you're like, oh, this is nice. You find out who you're playing. And then you arrive at um, Broadcasting House, which is still... Uh, I'm like, oh, yeah. fucking BBC. <laughs> this is dead cool. And then I go in and I sit in the green room and we read the script out once in the green room and we have tea and biscuits. And then you record it and you get three takes, everything. You spend your entire time just paranoid that you're fucking it up because you can't hear what they're talking about in the booth. And you can just see people just mouthing, going blah, 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 <laughs> And you're like, they're just talking about I'm shit, aren't they? They're talking about I'm shit. It's like the paranoia is horrendous. And then you just go home. Yeah. It's 12 hours work, maybe 16 tops, and you just leave. And it, it, so it, it seems like, it's, it's not like a real job. It's not like going and being on set for six weeks. You're only there for two days. But then when Mark's doing it, I'm like, oh my God, he's got a Radio 4 series. That's amazing. But it's so common. Like, this is, this is something that comes up on our podcast time and time again, is this feeling of validity and, and imposter syndrome and the, the fact that you look at what everyone else is doing and you compare yourself. And, and we, we all know how poisonous comparing yourself to other people is, and particularly yeah. in this job. Um, but the thing is, is everybody's thinking it. Everybody's yeah. thinking it. Um, and obviously on our podcast, we only speak to the female experience. Uh, like, we don't have any men on the podcast. Um, yeah. uh, we only have women. Because um, part of the point is to give women the chance to have their voices platformed in this way. But, uh, like, I'm fairly certain it's, it's happening with the spe species-wide in terms of, of this I swear this to God, George Clooney's sitting in his house right now going, I can't believe Brad Pitt got Ad Astra and fucking Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I could have been in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I could have done that. I can't believe they took Brad. Um, yeah, uh, it's just, it is, it's, being a, being a female, because I was thinking about this this morning, I was talking to my mum about this, because I knew I was coming to speak to you. One of the things I find fascinating, and I know I can never change it, because it's hardwired in, I know that there's a lot of stuff about femaleness that makes me think of women differently than men. And it's nobody in particular's fault. Nobody made it happen. It's just the universe. It, no, it's not the universe. It's society. It's just everywhere you look. So that's what I was saying to my mum. I don't write because I'm rubbish at it. And I fear conflict, so all my scripts are very boring. Because I just resolve everything really quickly and it's very dumb. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't want them to fight. It's a shame. I'd just like to do a script about everybody being happy and nice. The way I wish the world was. Um, but... If I sit down to even try and think of an idea, I automatically put a guy in the middle. Mm. Can't help it. It's not intentional. And it, it's only as I've become more conscious of thinking about 
feminism and what it means to me and what role it has in the world that I've realised that I do that without knowing it. Yeah. Um, and I also, even although I never think of myself in this way, if I start to think about a female character, I immediately think of that female character in terms of relationship to other people, mm-hmm. as if that person on their own isn't enough. Yeah. That's really interesting. And it's, it's totally in the back of my head. And it's the same as what I was saying earlier. I wouldn't have worked in my 20s. I know I wouldn't because of my appearance. And, and why? Because I wouldn't have cast me in... I don't mind. I wouldn't have cast me as the Juve lead because I'm too plain. But why do I think that Juve leads have to be... Well, that's what I was going to say. That's something that's conditioned look. into your yeah. way of thinking that there is no reason no. why that can't be the case. Exactly. But it's, it's really difficult because I look at it and I go, it's not like... Because I didn't have... Like, my dad left when I was very young, so it's not as if I had a male in the house dominating that kind of conversation, quite the reverse. Mm. There was a very maternal family. I had my mum and my gran, and, you know, it was a really matriarchal family. Um, And my uncle, who kind of was my pseudo-dad, it's not as if he was wondering about being rampantly male at me <laughs> at all times to make sure that I knew how male he was um, or, and, and nobody restricted me on the basis of my gender so in theory I, should, I shouldn't think that way mm. because, because none of the immediate influences around me were, were, were leading me in that direction and yet it's at the very core of my being I feel better about myself at the moment because I've lost half a stone in weight and I feel, I, I know I feel better. Mm-hmm. What, what fucking difference does it make? What's the circumference my thighs are? But I feel better because they're thinner. Yep, it's conditioning and I don't think we fully appreciate. I think now in terms of like our political climate and, and the constant conversation we're having around this stuff, we're becoming more aware of it. But for a long time, this was just in our culture. The messaging in our culture was just feeding us this just yeah. constantly. Like we talk in the podcast and the persistent and, nasty, persistent and nasty initiative at large about how we are influenced by the stories we consume. Yeah. That's, that's we, uh, we get a view of our world from the movies we watch, the books we read, the TV we consume. And if you're just presented with the same story in the same sort of format of people of, of and how and the, the, the sort of archetypes that said people inhabit, yeah. and it's the same thing over and over and over again, that's just that's conditioning you to see the world in that way. Absolutely. And that includes what a lead, leading lady looks like and what her role is in a story, yeah. who the hero should be, how thin each of them should be, yeah. and you can't help it. Yeah. Like, I, I, like what, I did Outlander last year and I was super excited. It was a small part, but it was a proper part. And I was in a scene with all the main people and I was so excited. But I spent a week panicking after I had my costume fitting because I just felt like such... Because I was stripped naked and got the corset and all yeah. the rest of it and... Of course, they hadn't fit, so they had to get a different one. And, and like, how come in? And I was like, I am just a big fat blob, and I hate myself. <laughs> Couldn't be excited that I'd got a proper TV job. I was yeah. just thinking about that yeah. and the lead up and how that how I would be perceived because of my weight. Yeah, it's me. And I had to give myself a proper mental slap because I was like, stop being so stupid. Like, but it's so hard because it's not it's not like an intellectual response. It's not. It's not your brain. No, it's not. It's not rational. It's not it's logic. Not, it's yeah, not logic. It's, it's absolutely core fibre of your being. Oh my god, I'm fat, therefore I'm worthless, or um, I've got crooked teeth, or anything. It's just really, and it's dead hard because when I was younger, I really resisted 
feminism as a concept because I feared that it was anti-men. I feared that it was like bolshiness for the sake of bolshiness. I, I don't really like tokenism. I don't, I, I used to really struggle with the idea of positive discrimination. I'm still not convinced that I love it. But at the same time, I now see that, that the only way that you can that you can try and create a balance is actually to skew things too far the other direction first and then allow it to settle back to the centre point. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I really resisted a lot of things about the whole concept of feminism and thinking about it. I didn't really want to think about it because I thought thinking about it made me anti-men. <laughs> and I'm really not... And I, and I don't think feminism is anti-men. I think there is a, a subset of people who use it as a justification for that, mm -hmm. which is, a, is in exactly the same way as there are anti-racism protesters who are fundamentally, you know, in, in, every, yeah. in every group, there's always somebody at the far end that's yeah. going, this basically is just an excuse for me to kick somebody in the head. Yeah, there's, <laughs> dickheads, the yeah, there's, there's dickheads everywhere, yeah. that's the thing. Um. Um, but yeah, I, it, it took me a long time to start thinking about femaleness and, and I suppose like reverting back to talking about careers and stuff one of the challenges I mean one of the good things in a way is now there's more older women on television than there have ever been mm. and they're almost starting to be kind of people in their own right yeah, I know. sometimes crazy, not it? all the time <laughs> but sometimes because I'm already I'm washed up in age terms because I've got three years till I'm 50 I feel that way and I'm almost 35 yeah because th they, like casting people don't know what to do with me. Yeah. Um, because I've got this kind of thing where I'm like, oh no, you, you don't look quite old enough to be somebody's mum. Yeah. But you're definitely not young enough to be that guy's romantic interest. Yeah. So. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's it's, and it's difficult because it's difficult coming back to what I was saying because a bit of me is like, but I kind of feel, feel like that when I watch television. And, I, and, and it's unfair, and I try really hard not to think in those terms. And, and if someone actually presents me with something different, then I'm totally fine with it, and I'll, I'll consume it and I'll enjoy it. I can't remember ever sitting down to watch something and being like, oh, no, I'm not getting into this because she's too old at all. No, <laughs> um, but if I see the casting before I see the show, sometimes I can be like, oh, I don't know. I wouldn't have had... In fact, well, here's an example. Um... They've just announced the cast for Guards Guards in the States. Mm. The lady they've cast is Sybil Ramkin, is not who I think Sybil Ramkin is. The problem is she's too young, she's too pretty, and she's I, I like I'm just like, that's that's not what she's meant to be. Mm. The whole point is she's a big statuesque verging into later life lady, and you've cast a young pretty girl. So it's not always do you know what I mean? It goes in both directions. Yeah. I'll probably sit down and, and if they make a good job of it, I'll really enjoy it. But at the moment, I'm dead resistant to liking it because I'm like, she's not right. But the, and but the, that's part of the problem, though. Like they've looked at the potentially the original brief for said character and gone, well, no, no one's going to watch that because who cares about statuesque older lady? Like if they can't fuck her or want to be her, then it's not sellable as a yeah. as a bit of product. And that is the that is the ultimate battle that we've been 
fighting for so long because the idea that the stories we need to see on our televisions and screens or big screens have to reflect the world around us for this conditioning to be undone. Yeah. And the world around us is full yeah. of women of all shapes and sizes and ages doing things and having an auto having autonomy and having a fucking journey and a story that it isn't isn't just an existence by what it relates to in terms of a man or the young pretty thing yeah. you know do you know what I mean yeah. and I think that is part of the problem because we can't see that in our stories it's that's affecting our conditioning and how we how we view what yeah makes sense to us no that's really really true um and, and I, I think the challenge is I, I don't understand because I've never really understood this fixation with youth mm. in terms of a uh, producing content because, because, like, from a purely pragmatic point of view, they don't have very much money. Middle-aged people have all the spare money. Yeah. So who do you want to watch your television and see your adverts and buy your stuff? The people with the money. And I don't understand, therefore, why that, that shift hasn't happened just on the basis of cash. Yeah. Never mind the fairness or the rightness or the wrongness. I, I, you know, and it's... It's weird because that's that's always been the argument for why you couldn't have an older female lead on a show because it wouldn't appeal to the right demographic because the demographic everybody's going for is 18 to 25. And I'm like, I had fuck all money when I was 18 to 25. <laughs> I had sod all. Like, I had student pounds and mm. I spent them... Well, I didn't drink, to be fair, but nevertheless, I spent them on going to the cinema and sandwiches. And, <laughs> do you know, I wasn't out buying consumer goods that your like, corporation's going to make money off advertising to me on the telly. I couldn't afford nice perfume. <laughs> you can show me as many fucking adverts as Zendaya riding a horse as you like. I couldn't have afforded it when I was at uni. Um, you know, but now I'm, well, not currently, but occasionally before I left my job, I was the kind of person that could go, oh, you do 75 quid. Yeah. I deserve a wee treat. You know? <laughs> I've been good this month. I've only bought a latte every other day. And, um, you know, so I don't... And I don't believe that there's some kind of mass conspiracy. I don't believe that it's an active attempt to maintain the status quo. Mm -hmm. It's just a weird inertia on all sides because... I, there are there are men who abuse their power absolutely, there are women who abuse their power we used to abuse our power in the office we used to sexually harass the guys, it was awful because it was an entirely female middle management we were really bad and I'm very sorry if any of the men that we abused are listening right now, I'm sorry that we made you bend over and pick up pencils and woot wooted at you it was unacceptable I, I put my hands the up apology has been made official on the Persistent and Nasty podcast yeah. um, so sorry you have John. not been cancelled. You're fine. <laughs> Sorry, John and IT. It's just unfortunate you wore tight trousers and you had a nice wee pert bum. Um, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but, yeah, I don't... Because I think sometimes that's, that's the difficulty, is that, that people want to have these kind of conversations and they go to quite... They, they make quite extreme statements about it. And the, the, the use of the term patriarchy, for example... Um, I'm not saying that I don't believe that patriarchy is part of the issue. I don't believe that all guys are getting together and discussing it no. and uh, coming up with strategies to make it harder for women. I don't, I don't buy that. Um, 
what the for me what the patriarchy is about is that everybody kind of likes things to stay the way they are yeah not not even because of what they get out of it, just because change is frightening. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way things have always worked. And, and, and coming in and, you know, blowing that up and changing it is frightening for everybody. So, so nobody has, like, or very few people have the motivation to want to come in and say, right, let's, let's shift it up a gear. Let's have... Amanda Redman is, I mean, Amanda Redman is one of the two women over 40 that work. Do you know what I mean? I mean good And good on her. She's great. She's a brilliant actress. I, I really like her. Um, let's have Amanda Redman and let's have her be the lead and her romantic relationship has fuck all to do with it. Yep. Why not? And she's nobody's mum. She doesn't even have siblings, actually. She's like a lone wolf. She's a lone wolf, yeah. Um, just howling at the moon. Woo! <laughs> um, you know, it's... Nobody's sitting going, I'm going to prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. But, but very few people feel the impetus to go, well, let's, let's shake it up a bit. Let's have a romantic lead who is a size 14 and has a slightly wonky nose and is probably going to be a wee bit jowly when she's older. Why not? Cause, yeah. Because, d- 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 what? So, because either what we're saying is women like that can't have sex fairly sure they are <laughs> yeah. Again, fairly sure they are ref- reflecting the world we actually live in guys. Yes. you know um, but at the same time I look at it and go I know that no no one, no man, no woman came into my life and said no you're nobody told me I was too plain and quite a lot of people said to me I wasn't too plain I just know I was too plain mm-hmm. you know and I, and I look back because every woman does this as well guys don't know this but it's true um, when you're in your teens and your 20s, you feel like you're really fat. Even if you're skeletal, you feel like you're fat. And then you get to your late 20s, early 30s, and you go, I would fucking kill to be that size now. Yeah. I would kill to be that thin now. I always felt like an elephant when I was in youth theatre, especially, because uh, Glasgow School's Youth Theatre was filled with... Now, bear in mind, I'm old, so everybody was thinner anyway because the diet wasn't as good. <laughs> so everybody was just generically skinnier. Um, and by the time, when you get back to my mum's generation, everybody was like a stick insect. It was like a giant population of twiggies just stoked about. <laughs> um, so, yeah, all the girls that I was in youth theatre with, I, I thought were impossibly thin and beautiful. And I felt like this side of the house... And it always dressed in huge, I, I, bought, I bought XXL t-shirts and big baggy joggies. Um, and everybody else was in dance tights and leotards and wee tiny t-shirts. And I was, I always hid at the back of the pictures. And I look at myself now and I'm like, I, I, there was absolutely nothing wrong with me. I wasn't fat. Yeah. I wasn't even chubby, actually. I was just perfectly normally sized. And, and again, I was going to say nobody told me that. That's not strictly true. A teacher in primary school once said to me that there was no such thing as puppy fat and I was just fat. And then I took a big stretch and was and then wasn't fat anymore. But that's one of the points where I think that probably for life, because I was about 10, I think, when she said that. And I think from that day until the end of my days, I'll never be thin enough to feel like yeah. I'm not fat. I mean, that shit's formative. Yeah, like that's that does a number. Um, but yeah, nobody tells you this stuff. It's just ingrained in the culture so much that it's there's messages telling you that coming from everywhere. Yeah, subtle and not so subtle. Yeah, all the time. 
that's true of, of age and weight and what's considered an okay human body to move through society without judgment. Mm. Um, and that's the whole point of this chat, is, okay. to, is to expose this stuff and talk about how it, <laughs> it's doing a number on us and change is coming. It and is. I think the more we have these chats, the closer we will get to hope, hopefully being in a position to present a society to the next generations that's slightly less toxic and fucked up. It would be nice. I think, I mean, I, I see positive steps. Um, there's a project called The Street in Hamilton, and uh, it's uh, kids who are sort of known to police and social services that, that actually create the, the whole experience, and then other kids come and they have workshops and stuff, and it's, it is a really cool, cool project. And a lot of the kids there, you know, they fight, and they, there was, like, horrendous football bigotry. Horrendous. Nobody could have given a crap what your sexuality was, though. Nobody cared. And people were out and proud. Some of them were gay, some of them were bi. One of them was probably going to be transgender. Nobody cared. They cared about your, your football. Mm. They cared about your appearance. But... You know, and, and, and I sort of looked at that and I thought these were kids who were growing up in really hard environments, a lot of them, where a lot of the stereotyping of society is at its worst because there's that kind of, I can't punch up and there's no one to punch down to because I'm at the bottom, so I'll just punch out the way at everyone yeah. around about me. Um, but they, they had managed to kind of go through that experience and come out and not care who you wanted to have sex with mm. and if you if that can change enough then everything can change yeah. it's just I don't think I'll live to see it <laughs> which I, which seems terribly sad to me I don't know why it should take that long but I don't honestly think I'll see a time in my life where gender doesn't matter um, I hope I'm wrong. I hope you're wrong too. It will come. I yeah. just, I just, I think it's going to take a lot longer than I wish it would. And I think we're only at the start of it as well. So yeah. I think to a certain degree you might be right, but I don't think that's as negative a, th a thing as it perhaps sounds. Yeah. Because we are just at the start of a massive, massive, massive cultural shift and everybody's a bit fearful and everybody's freaking out because there is no blueprint for this and everybody's panicked about, you know, like you said earlier about fearing change and what's that, what's that going to mean for them and if they abuse someone and is this going to happen and does that mean I don't get a job anymore and, and there's a lot of stuff to be worked out and I think we're not even at the dust settling stage of this yet, so... Yeah. But at least it started. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about... Because um, I feel like the fundamental problem we have as a world and as a society at the moment is that the vast majority of people just aren't very good at sharing <laughs> anything, space, you know, existence, anything. And, and there's that fear of if I get... Because I, I had a very robust discussion with a friend of mine about um, the uh, 007 being a woman mm. in the new movie um, that's coming out because Bond is a man. And I'm like, yes, but Bond is still a man. And do you know how I know that? Because Daniel Craig's in the film. <laughs> um, it's just the 007 
That'll be the barrels. <laughs> That'll be the oh. band getting ready to come in here. Hi, it's the beer coming in. <laughs> oh, num num. Um, so, yeah, but we had this really robust discussion and the phrase was, the phrase that was used was taking it away from. Mm -hmm. You're trying to take away our character. And I'm like, no, you still have it. Yeah. We're just sharing. I get it as well. Yeah. Same with Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but more generally, there's that. People have, have developed this kind of really narrow view of, of the, everything, of the world. Car, people in car parks is the ones that, that they drive me nuts. Like, there are other people in the car park. So just, just drive like you know that you're not the only person here. I'm not even asking you to be particularly nice about it. Just drive like you notice there are other people here. That's the most, that is the best like, metaphor for this. <laughs> I've ever heard. I, I, I said to someone last night, I think sometimes I feel as if, because social media and everything gives you a really warped view of, of your place in the world. I, I do believe that, and it's making a big difference. But it's as if people are wandering through the world feeling like they're the only real person here, mm -hmm. and everything else is just an avatar. So they don't have any concern about how what they do will impact anything else, because nothing else is real. They're the only person here. So they drive through the car park and just barrels. You know that way when you're, there's like two lanes and they're just barreling straight down the middle of it. You know, like, I, can't, I can't go anywhere. I'm, I, but I exist, I'm alive. I've, I've started to think I have an invisibility cloak. <laughs> like, and th there's a button somewhere near the windscreen wipers and sometimes I switch on because pedestrians can't see me. Other cars can't, nobody can see me. They just drive straight at me and I'm like, I don't, oh, see me in the street. <laughs> oh no, I've put the invisibility cloak on, people are battling you out of the way. And... Somehow, some way, I'm going to work the invisibility cloak and driving straight at me at a car park into the metaphor for feeling how you feel as a woman in this industry. I think that's <laughs> basically how I'm going to sum this up. I'm afraid we have run out of time. Wonderful, wonderful, Karen. That's because I talk like I'm just a sad loser who no, can't no. keep on a topic. It's, <laughs> it's been absolutely brilliant um, chatting to you. Um, fascinating, funny. Uh, you're you're a cracking human, oh, and you're very you. talented. Oh, that's and, very uh, genius. No, you are, and um, yeah, it's been absolutely cracking to have you on. Have you, have you got anything that you would like to punt, like anything you've got coming up, or should people follow you on social media? Or what would you like to share before we sign off? Uh, people can follow me on Twitter um, if they want. I talk about I rant about politics a lot. <laughs> I moan about politics a lot. Um, so I'm at Kazbaa, K-A-Z-B-A-A. Um, on Twitter, so you can follow me on Twitter if you like. Um, what I have to punt is I'm in Panto. Yay! Oh, it's nearly Panto <laughs> time. Uh, so if you're looking for a lovely, genuinely nice, family-friendly, funny Panto, um, I'm at the Air Gaiety doing um, Jack and the Beanstalk with Chris Forbes, Gav John Wright, uh, Kirsty Malone, David McGowan and Gillian Cunningham. Uh, and uh, yeah, it starts end of November and ends of the 5th of January. I can't remember the exact start date. I think it's the 27th. I'm sure people can find, can people get tickets online? They can. Tickets are available on the Air Gaiety website. Fabby. Fantastic. Well, Karen, uh, you're brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest and all the best with Panto. And Thank until you. next time, everybody out there, stay nasty. Resistance! Resistance! Resistance!